Well, good morning. My name's Nate. If we don't know each other, I'd love to meet you at some point. I'll be in the lobby after the service. But um, I was reminded this weekend of uh, how weird some of the things that Christians believe, um, how weird those things are. Um, I was having a conversation with um, a friend who's not a Christian. And as I was, uh, we were talking about faith and things that we believe and how we see the world. And as I was explaining things, um, I just, I realized the things that I'm saying that I believe that are like basic Christian stuff, it sounds so freaking weird when you're outside of the context of the church, you know? Um, And uh, so that happens to me fairly regularly, but this weekend in particular, I was reminded of that. And one of those things that Christians have historically believed that seems crazy um, is the virgin birth. Uh, For the last at least couple hundred years, um, the virgin birth has been a doctrine that's debated and seen as too ridiculous to believe. Um, And so some of the ways that scholars have um, worked on this is they've said things like, well, the virgin birth is only mentioned in two of the four gospels. If it was that significant of a thing, if it was that important, wouldn't it be in all four gospels, but it's only in two of them? So clearly this wasn't uh, a major um, teaching of the early church. Um, It's never mentioned by the apostle Paul um, in any of his teachings or any of his writings. And so it's also supernatural, which we should be skeptical of those parts of scripture anyway. Um, And so maybe the virgin birth was just a creation of some early Christians to beef up the origin story of Jesus. That's kind of how the thinking goes. Um, And so, you know, this early group of, you know, second century Christians started to believe in that Jesus was God or something. And in order to, you know, beef up his origin story, it's like, well, what if we said, I don't know, he can't just be a normal guy. He's born of a virgin. Okay. Yeah, that's a good idea. And so um, there were other, you know, Roman and Greek Uh, mythology, goddess and God stories of virgin births. And so maybe they just copied that. That's kind of how the thinking goes. So that's one popular way of thinking about the virgin birth over the last couple hundred years. But um, today the claim goes even further against the virgin birth. The virgin birth is not just ridiculous, but it's also regressive. Um, Serene Jones, who's the president of Union Theological Seminary, says, I find the virgin birth a bizarre claim. It has nothing to do with Jesus's message. The virgin birth only becomes important if you have a theology in which sexuality is considered sinful. And so in her mind, um, the virgin birth narrative is actually just a product of a regressive worldview where sex is dirty and sinful. And that's the only kind of context where a virgin narrative like this would come up. But today, uh, we are enlightened and we know in our culture so much about sex and sexuality. I mean, just more than any culture ever, we just know the truth about sexuality and sex, right? Um, And we have, you know, solidified all of these things. And so now we can leave these kinds of regressive beliefs behind. How should we think about that? How should we think about the virgin birth? What's the point of it? And 
Why should Christians believe it? We're in the series called The Hope of Ancient Times, and we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 1 and 2, and seeing how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament promises. Last week, we looked at the genealogy or the family tree of Jesus, and we saw that Jesus is the promised king of blessing. Um, the next few weeks, what we're going to do is um, continue walking through Matthew 1 and 2, but we're not actually going to preach the texts that are in Matthew 1 and 2. Instead, what we're going to do is look at the Old Testament references that Matthew quotes, and we're going to go to those passages and preach those passages. So in today's passage, Matthew chapter 1, the verses that were just read, it says this, now all this, talking about this communication with Joseph about the virgin birth, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And then Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter 7. And he says, see, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. In other words, the claim that Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary did not come out of nowhere. It wasn't the invention of Matthew, and it wasn't the invention of the early church. Instead, it had a precedent in the Old Testament that Matthew draws our attention to. 700 years before Jesus was born, Matthew draws our attention to this prophecy. The way that I structured that sentence made it sound like Matthew was doing this 700 years before Jesus was born. What I meant is um, Matthew is drawing our attention to the prophecy that happened 700 years before Jesus was born. That's what I'm trying to say. English language, you know, you gotta get the sentence in order. Okay, Um, So the point is, an important part of understanding the virgin birth comes from understanding the background for this prophecy. So that's what we're going to do today, is talk about that, talk about where this comes from and why it matters. All right? So Isaiah chapter 7 is where we'll be if you have a Bible and want to follow along. Isaiah chapter 7. If you need a Bible, there's one in the seat there uh, in front of you that you can use. It's on page 605 in that Bible. And if you're new to the Bible, the big numbers we call chapters, the small numbers we call verses. And so we're in Isaiah, big number seven, starting in verse one. The setting for Isaiah chapter seven is very intense. It tells us in verse one, This took place, this that's about to happen, took place during the reign of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah. So it tells us that this happened during the reign of Ahaz. When this is being written, Ahaz is about 20 years old. He's just become king because his father has passed away. He was not expecting to be king. He was just a guy living his life, living in his dorm room, and all of a sudden he's king. Um... And so you can imagine the, uh, the shock that it is to suddenly go from you get to goof off as, you know, just a random person in the kingdom to now all of a sudden you're in charge. And his grandfather had been a, a very good king. His dad had been a good king. 
And so there's big shoes to fill. And when he becomes king, there's drama instantly. Arams, or the word Aram, uh, it's a nation, could be translated Syria. So some of your translations might say Syria. Here's what was happening. Aram's king Rezin and Israel's king Pekah, son of Remaliah, went to fight against Jerusalem. But they were not able to conquer it. So these two foreign nations rise up and form an alliance. And we find out more of the context of this from 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. You can go read that sometime if you would like. But basically, these two foreign nations have formed an alliance against this foreign power called Assyria, the Assyrian Empire. And these two foreign powers, Syria and Israel, or Aram and Ephraim, are other names for these kingdoms, um, these two, uh, this alliance that they formed, they want for Judah, and the, the nation that um, Ahaz is the king of, they want for him to join their coalition, their alliance. But he refused. And the reason that he refused is because he was afraid of the Assyrian Empire and he didn't want to be on the wrong side of the Assyrian Empire. And so he refuses to join this alliance. And so consequently, these two kings lead their armies to attack Judah. And they're able to get... uh, all the way to the capital city, but they're not able to conquer the capital city. So King Ahaz is backed into Jerusalem with his army and his family and those who live in the city. He's backed into this capital city of Jerusalem and he's watching as the rest of his kingdom is starting to fall. And These two nations, it says, verse two, when it became known to the house of David that Aram had occupied Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the hearts of his people trembled like trees of a forest shaking in the wind. So it says that Ahaz starts to tremble along with the whole house of David. We'll talk about that in a second. Why? Because Syria has occupied Ephraim. In other words, These two nations have both moved their armies into territory within striking distance of Judah. It's terrifying. We learn in 2 Kings that they actually took thousands of people from Ahaz's nation captive and had destroyed many of the other cities. And he's 20 years old and he's supposed to lead. Now, can you imagine the fear of that moment? Would you be shaking like a tree blowing in the wind? That's how he's described. And not just him, but it says the whole house of David is trembling and shaking. Do you see that verse two? When it became known to the house of David. Now, The house of David refers to the king's family, but it refers to the whole family, all of the descendants of David. Why are they nervous? Well, David's family had been promised from God. They believed that 
God had said one of their family members, one of the descendants of David was going to remain. And he was eventually going to have a kingdom that would reign over the whole world. We talked about that last week. The house of David believed that promise. So why are they shaking like trees in the wind? Well, because there are these two foreign powers that are trying to invade. And here's what those two foreign powers are planning when this text takes place. Look at verse five. For Aram, or Syria, along with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has has plotted harm against you, the house of David. They say, let's go up against Judah to terrorize it and conquer it for ourselves. Then we can install Tabil's son as king in it. What is the thing that they are plotting? They're plotting to kill Ahaz and the whole family line. That's what they're doing. And this is what you did in the ancient world. This is what you do in a monarchy. If you're coming to power and they say that based on their blood, they have a right to the throne, you kill off all the blood family members. And that's what they're planning to do to Judah. And so the house of David is watching as the rest of their kingdom is falling. They're backed into a corner in the city of Jerusalem. It hasn't been conquered yet. And the house of David is terrified. Can you relate to that? I mean, in a, in a literal sense, like you can't, right? <laughs> like you've never been the king of uh, some land and had foreign nations ready to invade and had to be responsible for, you know, navigating out of that. You've never had that exact situation. But have you ever peeked out of your window and looked at what the world was bringing to you and been completely overwhelmed and been completely terrified? Have you ever looked at what the world was sending your way, at what the forces of the world are bringing against you? You can see the devastation that's already taken place in your life. You're backed into a corner, peeking through your window, afraid of what might happen. That is the moment that Ahaz finds himself in, and that is the moment, more importantly, that the house of David finds themselves in. God has made promises that the line of David will continue. Okay. But have you seen the plans that they're making? Yeah, we could trust God and his promises, but do you see what's happening? This is real. This is practical. We don't have time for, oh, the legend of the, you know, promise to David and uh, David's son will reign. We don't have time for that. Do you see the armies? Do you see the thousands of people who have been shipped off into captivity? Do you see what's happening? Don't give me some spiritual truth about David and his family right now. That's what Ahaz is thinking. What would God say to him in that moment? 
verse three. The Lord said to Isaiah, go out with your son, Sheer Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. He sends, God sends Isaiah, and this is an interesting detail that will be important in a minute. He sends Isaiah with his son, and his son at this time is just a toddler. He's just a little guy. And he sends him to go meet King Ahaz. They're meeting at the conduit of the upper pool, you know, the one by the road to the launderer's field. No, you don't know, but they did. And so I don't either. And so verse four, say to him, here's what Isaiah is supposed to say. Calm down and be quiet. Calm down and be quiet. Apparently Ahaz has been looking out his window and panicking throughout the palace and throughout the city. And consequently, everybody else is panicking. Apparently, he's not just cowering by himself in a corner, but he's being loud about his fears. So God says to him through Isaiah the prophet, calm down. Be quiet. Then he says, don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two incredible armies. Is that what he says? What does he call these kingdoms that have caused such terror in the hearts of the house of David? He calls them Two smoldering sticks. Now this is actually really cool imagery. He looks out at these two armies and God says, they're like two smoldering sticks. Have you ever tried to build a fire? And you know that the stick will catch on fire pretty quick. But are you going to build a very strong lasting fire with nothing but just a couple of sticks? No, why? Because they'll smolder so fast. They turn orange and man, when they're orange, they can do some real damage. But they don't stay orange very long. Instead, they become gray ash very quickly. And God says, yeah, that's what those two kingdoms that you're afraid of are like. They're like smoldering sticks. Then he says, verse seven, this is what the Lord God says. It will not happen. It will not occur. What will not happen? What will not occur? The plans that these kings are making, the plotting that's taking place, them trying to overthrow and kill the house of David, it will not happen. It will not occur, God says. And then, he offers him some encouragement. It's kind of subtle, but it's kind of cool. He says, verse eight, the chief city of Aram is Damascus. 
The chief of Damascus is Rezin. Verse 9. The chief city of Ephraim is Samaria, and the chief of Samaria is the son of Rimaliah. What does he say? He's saying, if, if you could trace back the source of Aram, where does it go? Damascus, that's the capital city. And who's built up the capital city of Syria? It's the king, Rezin. Okay. So Rezin is the chief. He's the source. He's the head of this kingdom that you're worried about. And Samaria, it's the, the capital city of Ephraim, the northern kingdom, Israel. And Who's the chief of Samaria? We don't even know his, I can't even remember his name. The son of that one guy, uh, Remaliah. Yeah, that's right. Doesn't even call him by his name. It's this insult in Hebrew. It's kind of cool. What is the point? Why is, why is the Lord saying this to him? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Damascus is a city with no promises and Rezin is a king with no pedigree. Samaria is a city with no promises and Pekah is a king with no pedigree. But Jerusalem is a city with a promise and the house of David has divine pedigree. So don't be worried about the two smoldering sticks. That's what he's saying. And then to just get it more on the nose for the literal thinkers. Parentheses. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. Within 65 years, that is within a lifetime. These kingdoms that you are afraid of are going to come to nothing. And looking back, historically, that turned out to be true. These two kingdoms would fall. It would happen in three phases. You can Google that. But they do fall. In 65 years, it happened just as God said it would. How do we respond to the plans of fleeting kings in our day? See, with the vantage point of history, it's easy to look back and be like, should he have been afraid of these two kingdoms and their plans? The answer is no. Those two kingdoms amounted to nothing. There was much something much worse to fear, and that was Assyria. And rather than spending his time trying to get in league with Assyria, he also should have just stayed faithful to God's promises. It's actually him trying to get in league with Assyria that accelerates the downfall of the kingdom. That's a story you can go read another time. King Ahaz, he doesn't listen to anything God says in this passage. And instead he goes and he takes a bunch of gold and valuable stuff out of the temple. He sends it as a gift up to Assyria and is like, hey, they wanted me to join with you guys, but I didn't. And that's because they wanted me to join them against you guys. And I didn't because I love you guys. And here's this awesome stuff. And the king laughs at him and pretends to kind of, okay, well, yeah, we're, we're, me and you, we're on league. And then he just starts 
the plot to invade. I mean, literally, that's basically what happens. But Assyria gets overthrown before they're even able to do it. So he didn't even have to be worried about Assyria. So that's what's going to happen historically. I mean, looking back, just, you know, don't worry about these few kingdoms. Is the Assyrian Empire still around today? No. So don't worry about it. And yet, when you're in the middle of it, when you're city is being sieged. When you're looking out your window at all that the world is throwing at you, when you see all that stands against God, when we look out and we see the alliances that the world has formed together against God and his people, when we feel attacked by the world with all the beliefs and behaviors that oppose God's word, when we feel tempted to make a deal with the world because the world is offering us peace if we would just sign the treaty. Do we consider these threats in those moments to be just smoldering sticks? See, the brilliance of this imagery of the smoldering sticks is that We know that it's short-lived, and yet in the moment, it seems so bright and orange and dangerous. And God is encouraging his people to take the long view here. Take the long view. Make the long play here. Do not make decisions in your life based on two smoldering sticks. For most of us, just like God promised them, for most of us, in 65 years, the kingdoms of this world will have no power over us. Now, in many ways, that's actually a sobering thought. I was thinking about that. In 65 years, the things that I am stressed about now will not matter to me at all because I will most likely be dead. All of the fears and concerns that I sense right now to be so real and the consequences so lasting are like smoldering sticks with an expiration date. Does that mean that they can't cause harm? No, it's a smoldering stick. Does it mean that they don't matter, that they're not real. No, it just means you should not make your decisions in life based on the smoldering sticks. Instead, think longer than that. Think further than that. Lift your eyes up and take the long view. Don't make decisions in your life based on the smoldering sticks. In the midst of giving him those assurances, God finishes this address through Isaiah by saying this, the end of verse nine. If you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. If you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. 
Because of these kingdoms, you're like a tree being blown around. Stand firm, God is saying. Don't be tossed to and fro by every wind, but be grounded on something. Then God does something gracious to Ahaz. He says this, verse 10. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Do you know what that means? Get crazy, man. Think of the most ridiculous, miraculous thing you could dream up and I'll do it. God says. But Ahaz replied, verse 12, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Now this is pretend, you know, reverence for God, but he doesn't care about God. He's already proven that in his life. He's going to go and prove it in all the decisions he's about to make. This is not, he is quoting from Deuteronomy here. You're not supposed to put the Lord to the test. But if God shows up through his prophet and says, put me to the test, which he does a few times in the Old Testament, the point is, put him to the test. We could explain why Deuteronomy 6 doesn't apply here. Don't have time for that. It's not the point of the sermon. The point today is Ahaz is not being humble. He's actually being arrogant. He doesn't want a sign from the Lord because he doesn't trust the Lord. He trusts Assyria. That's why he's cleaning out the treasure chest in the temple to get a gift to send to Assyria. He's not interested in what God would have to say about how God's going to protect you from these. He's not interested in that. Because he's looking out his window and it doesn't seem like they are smoldering sticks. It seems like they are great logs on fire. And so he refuses the sign. And then Isaiah gets a little testy with him and he says, verse 13, Isaiah said, listen and then notice who this is addressed to now. Originally Ahaz was given the opportunity to ask for a sign, but now listen to who Isaiah addresses. He says, listen, house of David. He's not just speaking to Ahaz individually anymore. Now he's speaking to the whole royal line, to the whole house. Listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? He says, my God and your God are, we're following different gods right now. Verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And notice that the you here in verse 14 is plural in the original. It's hard to um, communicate that in English because we have the same word for singular and plural. But the idea is y'all, use guys, okay? So the Lord is going to give the house of David a sign. Here's the sign. Look, see, 
the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. God gives this sign himself. And what is the need for the sign? What is the purpose of the sign? Who is it directed to? The house of David. Why is the house of David afraid? Because there's a plot taking place to kill them all and end the line of David. And why would that be a problem? Because God promised that David would have a son who would have a kingdom that would reign forever. So God is giving them this promise. He's addressing it to the house of David in order to satisfy that fear. He's saying, look, a virgin will become pregnant. A virgin will have a son and name him Emmanuel. What I've learned this week is that this prophecy in its original context is messianic. That is, Isaiah intended in Isaiah 7 verse 14 to prophesy about a future Messiah, a future Christ, a future son of David who would reign. And to be honest, that was new to me entering this text. I entered this text with the hypothesis of what I thought this prophecy was about. And that's the fun thing about Bible study is I walked away thinking, nope, I was wrong. The, the, um, commenta- the commentator that I followed that I think makes the most sense of the text and has the most careful reading of the text happens to be a professor that I had at Moody in undergrad. His name is Dr. Idelnik. And here's what he's pointed out about this prophecy that helped me see that I, I believe this is messianic, that Isaiah is prophesying about Jesus in Isaiah 7:14. First of all, if you just read this on its own, the reason that I have to clarify all that and the reason that I didn't think it was originally about Jesus is because if you just read it quickly, verse 15, by the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. Verse 16, for before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. It sounds like this is going to be a son who's going to be born like in a couple years. So then why does Matthew come along and say, well, but it's actually about Jesus? Is Matthew doing some kind of hermeneutical, you know, jumping through hoops to make that argument? Dr. Adelnik helped me see, no, I think that originally Isaiah is prophesying about the Messiah. Let me show you how or why I think that. First, remember who this prophecy is to. It's to the house of David. It's to give them assurance that the line of David from which the Messiah will come will not die. Notice, as I pointed out, that the pronouns change in verses, from verses, uh, in verses 13, 14, and verse 17. The reason is because this sign is being given to the whole house of of David. We'll talk about why that matters in just a second. Then let's talk about the actual sign. 
He says, see, the virgin will conceive, have a son and name him Emmanuel. Some scholars have come along and said that the word virgin doesn't actually mean virgin. This is a word that in Hebrew is the word Alma. And there are those who say that this should be translated as young woman instead of virgin. A miracle was never being predicted here, they say. Instead, they're saying that a young woman is going to get pregnant by ordinary means. There's nothing miraculous being indicated just by using the word virgin becoming pregnant. Virgins can become pregnant. That's not a miracle. They can become pregnant through ordinary means. And they say that's all that's being talked about here. The word virgin, it just means a young woman who's going to get pregnant. The problem with this is, first of all, that this sign is being given after God has said it can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. In, order, in other words, the context is asking for something miraculous to be given. And the other problem with this is the word virgin in verse 14 means virgin. And it can refer to a young woman, but the best way to find out what a word means is to look at how the word is used in the Hebrew Bible. And throughout the Hebrew Bible, the word can refer to a young woman, but there is not one occurrence of the word in the Hebrew Bible where it refers to someone who is not a virgin. And so when the original translators of the Hebrew Bible translated it from Hebrew into Greek, this is a translation called the Septuagint, they used the word in this verse, parenthos, meaning virgin, someone who has never had sexual relations. That means before there was any Christian doctrine of the virgin birth, there were already people reading this text and understanding it to mean that a virgin is going to become pregnant. Something miraculous is being predicted here in this passage. The way that this translation translates uh, this sign says, see the virgin will conceive. This translates it as a verb. And that follows the Septuagint tradition because as the person was translating it, it seems like that's what you would need to say. The virgin is going to conceive. But what it actually says in the original text is the virgin is pregnant. The word pregnant is an adjective to describe the woman. So the way that the sign is given is, look, see, the virgin is pregnant. Someone who has not done the ordinary means of becoming pregnant is pregnant. That's how the original reads. This pregnancy will be a son and his name will be Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. This verse hints at the divine nature of the Messiah. There are a number of hints like this in the Old Testament. This is one of them, that the one who will come from the line of David will be God himself. This is further confirmed by Isaiah chapter nine, just two chapters over, you can flip there, in verse six, when it says, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named 
wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father or the father of eternity and prince of peace. His name's going to be mighty God. His name's going to be God with us. If this is about Jesus, why is his name Jesus and not Emmanuel? And the reason is that Emmanuel, like the names given in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, are descriptions of him. It's what you could call him. It's his title. It's his nickname. It's what you could, you could describe him with. You could describe Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. When you look at Jesus, you could say, what do we learn about God from him? That he's with us. And then verse 15, the last part of the prophecy By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, that is, by the time he is old enough to know right from wrong, he will be eating curds and honey. What the heck does that mean? It's just a Hebrew idiom for the land is going to be oppressed. The land will not be, you will not be in a position of power when this son is born. Instead, he's going to grow up eating curds and honey. It's an expression that just refers to the situation he's going to be born in. So, Isaiah gives this sign from the Lord that comes from the Lord himself. Because God wants his people to not shake like trees when they see foreign threats. And instead, he wants them to stand firm. And so what does he do? He gives them a sign that will remind them of his power and his presence with them. The cool thing is then verse 16 and 17 is not a continuation of this first prophecy in verses 14 and 15, but instead, verse 16 and 17 is a second prophecy. And this is what Dr. Rydelnik helped me see. Verse 16, for before the boy, the little phrase for before indicates a, a conjunction, a, a change in thought um, in the original. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. Verse 16 is not talking about the son from verse 14. Who is verse 16 talking about? And here's where you have to read closely. Who's the other boy who's present when this sign is being given? Verse 3. The Lord said to Isaiah, go out with your son, Sheer Jashub, to meet Ahaz. Sheer Jashub's name means a remnant will return. Isaiah goes, he makes this prophecy to the whole house of David. There's going to be a son born who's going to be born of a virgin. Now, as he's standing there, he turns to Ahaz and he says, listen, for before this boy my son, before he knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. Verse 17, the Lord will bring on you 
And now it's singular, not plural, speaking directly to Ahaz. Verse 17, for the Lord will bring on you, your people and your father's house, such a time as has never been since Ephraim separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. In other words, you are going to escape these two smoldering sticks, but there is still bad news coming. But guess what? This boy, my son, God has brought him here to be a reminder for you that a remnant will return even when the kingdom falls. Why is a remnant going to return to the land? Because God intends to put a son of David on the throne. And he's just promised that through the Emmanuel prophecy, the virgin birth prophecy in verse 14. So that's how I have come to understand the passage. In its original context, God is offering assurance to not play the short game, but play the long game. Don't compromise your faith because of what you see in front of you. Instead, stick it out because there is a day coming when even a virgin will give birth to a son. And on that day, you will be able to say, God is with us. So, what do we learn from this sign? This sign God is using to communicate his power and his presence. His power and his presence. It communicates his power. How? Well, because he said, choose the size of the miracle you want. It can be as high as heaven or as deep as hell. And he says, God says, Here, here's one. Someone who's never had sex will get pregnant. At the end of Luke chapter one, after the angel tells Mary this, here's the conclusion that the angel draws. Nothing will be impossible with God. The reason God can make this promise is because he's able to follow through on the promise. And as a dad, I'm learning how important that is. I say things all the time like, yeah, tomorrow we will do whatever. And I'm not even thinking about all the various things that could happen tomorrow that would prevent us from being able to do that small thing. Like, oh, we're not going to be able to go to the park because it's raining or something like that. I, it's in me to be able to make promises that I can't actually fulfill. I have a good intention to do so, but I can't actually follow through on it because I am not all powerful. But God makes promises that are crazy. God can give signs that are crazy because God can do whatever he wants. He's God. He's the all-powerful God. And this means that we should not be embarrassed about the supernatural parts of our faith. Listen, there is something in me that when I'm talking to people who I'm like, man, I really want them to respect me. And I can't, if, as I'm talking about, especially if I'm talking to like someone who's not a follower of Jesus, if you're here today, this, this is how I feel sometimes, okay? Um, when I'm talking to people who, who, who don't follow Jesus, I feel embarrassed. Like I want to try and make the faith seem as reasonable as possible, as practical as possible. I, want, I, I don't want to have to get into a conversation about this kind of stuff because I'm embarrassed about it. So I'm like, yeah, I really do. We do believe that, but following Jesus will make you a better dad though. And so 
listen to that part, you know. Um, and the virgin birth stands like, a, like a, a sign at the front of the door of the gospel that says what follows here is not normal. If you can't get past the virgin birth, what are you going to do with the feeding of the 5,000 or the calming of the storm or the walking on the sea? What are you going to do with the crucifixion and the resurrection from the dead? So it's foolish in the name of being relevant to culture to look out at, oh gosh, People don't believe in the virgin birth anymore. They think this is crazy. They think that Jesus being raised from the dead physically is crazy. So let's make it about, well, there's life that can come from the worst of circumstances. Or, you know, let's make it metaphorical to make ourselves sound better. That is looking out of your window, afraid of two smoldering sticks. That's what that is. And so the virgin birth stands as a sign for me and for us to say, what follows is not normal, dude. God is all powerful. He can do whatever he wants. So don't be bashful about it. The sign confirms God's power and the sign confirms God's presence. God is with us. He's Emmanuel. That becomes a reality through the virgin birth. Through the virgin birth, to quote the Heidelberg Catechism, the eternal son of God, who is and remains the true eternal God, took to himself a true human nature through the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of Mary, so that he might also become David's true descendant, like his brothers in all things except for sin. The reason the virgin birth matters is because it's the means by which God has actually come to be with us. It's the means by which God has joined himself to humanity. God has taken on a human nature in the person of Jesus Christ through the virgin birth. And the reason that you need a God who has taken on a human nature, who has taken on flesh, the reason that you need a God who has done that yet without sin is because that's the only kind of savior who can save you from your sins. What you and I need most in the world is a savior from our sins. Our greatest threat is not Aram and Israel. It's not the Assyrian empire. It's not the Democrats. It's not the Republicans. It's not Russia. It's not China. It's not North Korea. Our greatest threat is our own sin. The thing that can undo us most eternally is our own sin. And what we need most to be saved from that is a mediator who is God and man. And that is what we get in Jesus Christ. For there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. This is what the book of Hebrews is all about, that Jesus has come to be our mediator, our intercessor, 
The one who can go between a holy God and a sinful humanity. Who? The one who is like us in every way, yet without sin. That's who. The God-man. Jesus is truly God, truly man. He proves that in the virgin birth. This is why he's named Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. He's God with us. And last thing, as we land the plane here, he's God with us. Now, often I think of God being with us, Emmanuel, as like a personal comfort to me as an individual. And that is true. If I'm going into a stressful meeting, God is with me. But it's bigger than that, the truth here. It's not just that God is with me. It's that God is with a group of people. Who is the us? Originally, it was the nation of Judah, the house of David. That's who it was promised to. But it can be true for us. Because the son of David who has come has made a new covenant, a new promise. And the sign of that covenant, the new sign that the son of David, Jesus, has given us is his blood. And if you are ever tempted to doubt God's presence with you, you could look to the Virgin Mary and see her pregnant, though she's not had sex. You could look to the manger and see God is with us. But it's even better than that. You can look to the cross where Jesus, the son of David, has shed his blood for sinners so that sinners like us cannot have to flow back and forth because of the winds of life and what the world throws at us like trees blowing in the wind, but instead we can stand firm, confident. We do not have to fear smoldering sticks anymore because there is the possibility to be part of a kingdom that is an oak and God is with us. Those who belong to Jesus through faith. This means even if you're peeking through your window and death gets in, which will happen, even if there's a financial collapse, even if there's an unexpected conflict in your family, even if there are all kinds of things that would cause you to go like this. You can know your future is secure. God will be with you now and forever. And you can know that because of what Jesus Christ has done in his death on the cross, inaugurating a new covenant with you and in his resurrection from the dead and his promise to return to the earth. And that truth is what we are going to remember now as we take the Lord's Supper. Let me pray for you, and then we'll take the, the meal together. Father, thank you for being a God who makes promises and keeps them. You defy all odds. We praise you for that. God, as we prepare to take this supper now, 
Could we want to corporately confess that all of us are prone to look and be cowardly at the things of this world? God, we are, are prone to trust in things to protect us that cannot protect us. God, we want to repent of that now. We want to remember you. We want to remember your word, your promise in the person of Jesus. So God, help us to live lives that are wise, not foolish. Help us to live with a big, long view of the world. It's in Jesus' name that I ask. Amen. Well, as we prepare to take uh, the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is, is confessing something together. We're declaring something as we take this. Could I get uh, some of that? Could you go ahead and, and you can go ahead and begin passing. Thank you. Um, what we're confessing is that we believe that this bread is a symbol of a body that has come to earth and lived. That's the body of Jesus Christ, the one who was conceived and a virgin, grew up, fulfilled the law and the prophets in order that he might save us. We're confessing that as we eat this. We're confessing that we believe in the blood of that son of David who was born. It's because of his blood shed on the cross that sinners like us can go free. That sinners like us can be part of a kingdom that will last forever. And so as we eat the bread and drink the cup, what we're doing is communicating to one another that that is what we believe, that that is our confession. shall now take the bread and the cup. I'll read the Apostle Paul's words. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Jesus is coming again with a kingdom. And that is what we are longing for. Would you stand and sing with us now?